Super Talk Mississippi media production. Specializing in Ford, Nissan, Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, and Rams. CorinthAutoGroup.com and FordOfCorinth.com, where cars and happy drivers meet. Visit us now in person or online with the experience you deserve. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbert along with rhino in the element wealth studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music on this friday eve one more day in the studio and then i'm back on the road again uh, tomorrow headed up to oxford for the Ole Miss school of business banking symposium the 20th such event, and then looking forward to enjoying an event with Senator Tim Scott is going to be in town. This is to discuss the new Declaration of Independence Center for the Study of American Freedom. Our friend Professor Stephen Scoltetti, Chair of Philosophy and Religion at the university, while on the show a few weeks ago, I got to uh, talk to him. Some at the Dennis Prager event a couple of weeks ago, and then when I spoke to the college Republicans, he was kind enough to attend, and I really appreciate that. But this is going to be a big deal tomorrow, no doubt about it. Unfortunately, simultaneously here at uh, my alma mater, pro-Hamas protests broke out in the Grove. Not really happy about that. Again, I completely respect their right to go out there and and protest. But that freedom of speech also allows you to call them blithering idiots. Sure. And I completely disagree with them. Israel is the only democracy in the whole dang region. They're our only friend in the region. And let me tell you this, folks. For what it's worth, and this is something liberals just it just loses, it's lost on them. If you consider yourself a liberal or a progressive, certainly you see by now only this country and our allies. By the way, our allies do not include Palestine. Only, including Israel, only place in the world where progressive values are even considered values. Let's be honest about it. If this civilization collapses, it won't be replaced by a progressive utopia. Yeah, but they're convinced that if we could just install communism in America, then they can be slam poets for $100,000 a year salary. 
Well, they can crochet little stuffed squid to sell to their buddies. What did you say a moment ago? They're blithering idiots because that's what, if they believe that, if they hold that view, that's what they are. None of all these various political identity groups that they fawn all over have a chance, have a status in society in those countries. In fact, they're likely to lose their lives for simply practicing their lifestyle. But you can't expect liberals and leftists to exist in reality. They live in la-la land. I reckon. And that, that's disturbing, at a minimum. The, uh, the Twitter debate continued, by the way, after the show with this, what's his name, Slim Smith? He's not worth the time and energy to even say his name. I know. And I honestly, maybe I should have refrained. And there's numerous others that are of his ilk and viewpoints. They weighed in as well. Pour yourself another glass, Slim. It's all you got going for you. He maintains that he did not engage in any sort of any sort of celebratory rhetoric when the great J.T. Williamson passed. That's what he maintains. Because he deleted it. I well, saw it. So he's full of it. Well, and and I I can tell you why I didn't see it, but and I and you know, of course, I totally believe you. And he, and here's what pretty much confirms that is so much like debating with folks on the left. He immediately descended into personal insults at me, right? You can't believe some of the crap he said. I didn't one damn time. Don't need to. I got the facts on my side. I just don't do that, but they do. And they enjoy it. They somehow get some sort of perverse pleasure out of it. That's fine. I don't care. If you're watching on Super Talk FM, I think this is the problem. <laughs> they can say whatever the hell they want. I don't care. Doesn't change my mind. Look, I'm not going to change their mind. I get it. But, uh, you know, I engage in factual discussions. One of the things that that I stated when I started in this rather lengthy exchange talking about the Democrat agenda and my concerns, as we indicated yesterday, about Mr. Presley being aligned with that, or certainly being expected to comply, given the fact that he's receiving millions of dollars with pe- from people who revere the Democrat agenda. One of those that I mentioned that I've talked about many times is the taxation of unrealized gains. Fully unconstitutional. Yet the left still wants to do it, including the president. I'd be curious to know where Mr. Presley stands on that. But of course he won't come on to talk about it. And I can tell you, Rhino, the number of people in this thread that said, well, you just need to sit down and talk to him. We've tried. (laughs) What else do we do? He's (laughs) chicken. And I'd ask him that question. That's a fair question. That's not a personal question. It's a it's a very specific policy question. So this person <laughs> whose name you don't want to mention, he said, what is that? And so at that point, I knew you lost all credibility. <laughs> you don't have a clue what you're talking about. That's a pretty key tenet of their tax plans. Pretty key. 
You don't think taxes are important? You ain't paying attention. Meantime, we got us a new Speaker of the House, Representative Mike Johnson from neighboring Louisiana. The first Which that must be a good decision, considering how many losers are losing their mind over it. There's no doubt about that. They are absolutely incensed, apoplectic, uh, and just, you're right, losing their minds. What is incredible, I guess kind of my litmus test, is what the Boston Globe has to say, because that is absolutely an enclave of left-wing loons. And so the title of the article... (laughs) Flashing red light, that's what it says. I hope Americans, this is the first statement in the article. I hope Americans realize how today's simple vote to install Mike Johnson of Louisiana as the new Speaker of the House has put our democracy in grave danger. (laughs) Hyperbole much. That's all they have. (laughs) Unbelievable. Exaggeration, emotion, and stupidity. It's just unbelievable. And so the fact that Mr. Johnson did not sign on to certify the election immediately just causes them to freak out. He's an election denier. <laughs> so you can't Do question. We need to pull out the 20-minute tape of Democrats denying the 2016 election. Uh, first thing I thought about. And... Um, H.W. Bush, right? When that came down to the Supreme Court, that I mean, well, W. A, w. Bush, right? Yeah, my bad. Uh, when was that? Two thousand two, as I recall. Two thousand, wasn't it? Maybe it's two thousand. Uh, you could be right. I, I lose track of the time. That's right because two thousand four. No, it was two thousand because well, it was the second election, or was it the first? It was the first two thousand. I think you're right. Because he served two terms, and then Barack Obama elected in 08. Served in 08, and then uh, got reelected in 12. 16 Trump. I think that's right. 2000. That was long before I gave a rip about politics. I understand. The hanging chads is one rumor. But the bottom line is, Democrats, including, I believe, Benny Thompson, congressman from Mississippi, think he failed to sign off on certifying, as as I recall, the 16 results. So, yeah, the double standard is outrageous. If it wasn't for double standards, Democrats wouldn't have any standards. It's just, agree, it's it's ridiculous. Um, and so this is what the left-wing Boston Globe says. He voted against a bill to establish an independent January 6th commission. He voted against the infrastructure law, reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, a modest gun control law, and the Chips and Science Act. Oh, the humanity. All oh, that's just a bunch of dang BS. He wants to prohibit children under the age of 10 from hearing or reading anything about LGBTQ plus people. Why do we got to talk about sexual orientation at that age? Why can't we focus on, I don't know, skills that might benefit children later on in life? That ain't one of them. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio with Flip Weinberg, uh, retired former assistant district attorney. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do it. 
Welcome back, everyone, to Who with Baba O'Reilly bumping into this segment in the Element Well studio. We welcome to the program Flip Weinberg, a retired former assistant district attorney and former president of the Mississippi Prosecutors Association. Flip, thanks for coming in. Oh, glad to be here, man. Thanks for having me. All right, so we uh, wanted to have you in to discuss uh, this situation with James William III, convicted of a double murder of uh, Cindy Mangum Williams and husband James Williams Jr. by Mr. Williams' son, James Williams III. He was paroled. I think he served 18 years, if I'm not mistaken. That's about right. right. That's about right. And then arrested for a DUI just this past weekend. This is after a murder conviction. I guess, what can you tell us about the case? You had some involvement in that. Well, yeah, I mean, I was one of the prosecutors involved in it. It, it was um, a gruesome murder case and a pointless murder case, and uh, we tried him. And he, as I told Paul Gallo a few months ago when we first talked about this, he just sat there and, and had this really hollow look to him as if nothing had happened, really. I mean, and as if, if something did happen, it didn't affect him at all. And so it was just kind of a kind of a mission for me to get him get him locked up, and so we did. We got him sentenced uh, life without parole, I think. And of course, since then the Supreme Court came out with a decision. James was seventeen at the time, so they came out with a decision that said you can't automatically sentence persons under eighteen years of age to life without parole. Uh, you have to take into consideration numerous factors. You can still do it, but you, you, there are only certain circumstances under which you can. And so, but but he got that sentence, and then he came up this year for parole, and uh, the parole board, in its wisdom, chose to let him out. Uh, I talked to a parole board member afterwards, and uh, that I knew, and she told me that uh, it sounded like a bunch of, frankly, bleeding heart type stuff. How he was. His childhood was bad, and he was mistreated as a child and things like that. And I said, well, look, you know, he had a trial. He had a lawyer. All of that, if it mitigated what he was supposed to get, was available at that time. Uh, the parole board didn't need to to base their decision on that. But, you know, it, he had one of these jailhouse conversions where he suddenly became, I think he became some type of a preacher there in the jail, in the prison. And... Uh, Obviously, it was he wasn't a Baptist, right? Because <laughs> uh, he has been arrested for DUI. <laughs> well, so it just seems to me sort of odd. I mean, I, I get it. You're 17. You're a minor, but you commit these kinds of heinous, gruesome uh, crimes as you described it, and you serve for 18 years. And then you're out. How could he not be still a menace and a risk to society? Well, as far as I'm concerned, there's no way. I mean, it takes a certain level of depravity to do what he did in the first place. And you don't you don't get rehabilitated from that. I mean, that's still within you, in, in my opinion. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's just one of those things where they they decided to show mercy on him. I, he, I don't think he deserved it. I don't think any murderer does. I think they ought to be in jail for as long as their victim is dead, you know, which is the rest of their life. Well, I mean, the, the problem, of course, is you're showing mercy to one individual, but you're putting at risk everybody else 
in society because this person is 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 free and not behind bars. Well, this is a perfect example of it. He, he ran a car into a ditch, from what I read. Uh, but what if he'd run into another car and killed somebody? Right. Uh, I, I liken it to the to the situation with the illegal aliens. If you, if you stopped them at the border and didn't let them in at all, then they couldn't come into America and commit a crime. Well, if you could have a prisoner and keep him in prison, he ain't going to come out there and victimize the public. All right. So if you're if you're convicted of a DUI, d- does that not somehow violate parole here? Shouldn't that? And what does that mean? Can't we arrest him, lock him up? You know, I've, I've been out four years since I retired. I think that just drinking the alcohol is enough to revoke him. Okay. And so uh, I don't know why he wouldn't be revoked or sent back to prison. Have you heard anything to that no. effect? No, no. And in fact, all I know about is what Alex told me and, and sent me that article that I read. I, have, so, I don't have any connections to, to get that information. Yeah. Right. I mean, is it just possible we, we have a parole board that seems to be a bit progressive in their thinking and a little too sympathetic to criminals and not enough to victims? Well, uh, I don't know how they are with other types of cases, but murders are special to me. I mean, I, I did a lot of them in, in 40 years of prosecution, and, and they're special. And, again, uh, you know, I, if it's murder. Now, I mean, there's, there are killings that are manslaughter and, and they're spur-of-the-moment things and, and not premeditated, not even intended in some cases, uh, where there might be some some redeeming qualities to the person who committed them. But, but not not murders, not premeditated murder. And that's clearly what this was. Oh, yeah, gosh, yeah. Nine times shot, I believe? That, that's what I read. I, I don't remember that. That's been 20-something years ago. Yeah. I don't really remember uh, the number. But, I mean, yeah, it was gruesome. I mean, both of them. I, I think he killed his dad, and then his mom walked, their stepmom walked in, and, and, and he killed her. I got you. Well, it, uh, what we understand is that it, it's unclear whether when a decision might be made, but uh, receiving the DUI, committing the DUI, even though it's a misdemeanor, it it could certainly lead to his parole being revoked. Well, as I say, I think that it's a deliberate violation just to even be drinking in the first place. So I, I don't think he should be uh, allowed to stay out. Are you concerned, though, that we're seeing a bit of a trend here with respect to the, to granting parole? We've, we've been seeing a trend in Mississippi that's alarmed me since at least 2014 when the legislature adopted House Bill 585, and they lightened the penalties for a number of crimes. Uh, grand larceny went from, a th- from 500 to 1,000. In other words, you could steal somebody's riding lawnmower, and if it wasn't the day they bought it, it probably depreciated in value to where it was under 1,000, hmm. uh, and, and it wasn't, wouldn't be a felony anymore. Uh, yeah. It's just it's just incredible what they did back then, but uh, yeah, I mean that was to me that was, if not the start, it was the the focal point of a change in philosophy in in, in Mississippi. And I, uh, of course, I never thought we'd see any any form of legalized marijuana either. So you just never know. <laughs> well, uh, it, it, there's been some other issues as well, uh, surprises I should say in some of the parole being granted. But, you know, my bigger concern, Flip, is for nonviolent offenses such as drug drug possession and so forth, we, we seem to be all over locking those folks up. Uh, but we have a situation like this, and 18 years later, they're out. So, I mean, this individual's, what, he was 17 at the time, so he's 35 years old? 
I guess, well, yeah, maybe, maybe more than that. Uh, yeah, because that was, what's it been? Uh, yeah, he's probably 30, under 40. 36 or 7. By yeah. Now. Um, yeah, I, I, again, I, I just am alarmed at, uh, as you described, a trend that I'm seeing because uh, in all of law enforcement, I mean, in, in all areas of law enforcement, they seem to relax the standards. And, and you know, when they did 585 back in 14, one of the reasons was because it got a lot of people out of prison or kept a lot of people out of prison, and that saved the state a lot of money. But it, it doesn't save the victims of their crimes anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It endangers people. And so I, it's just a shame that they let it go like that. So is it not a requirement when uh, parole such as for Williams here is being considered, that case is before the parole board, are they not supposed to – to, to at least have a discussion, interface, interact with the families of the victims. Uh, I think I think they probably do, and I know that the I talked to uh, Zeno Mangum, who's the who was the son of the mother, okay. uh, stepmother, uh-huh. and I mean the family is still devastated over this, and he did everything he could do to keep them from letting him out. Okay, and, and I wrote to all the parole board members, and uh, uh, and then again talked to the one that I knew. But I mean, that it's apparently they don't. Uh, if they talk to family members, they're not coming away from it moved by what the family members say. Clearly, because because if they were to, to spend a lot of time with Zeno, I know that they would uh, they would just see how devastating this was to the family. Yeah, clearly. I, I, I mean, it seems to me like they they ought to have some major influence in decisions like this. Uh, in, in in honestly. Their safety seems to be a bit at risk when you think about it. Heck, those involved in the case. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, how can you possibly trust someone who committed a crime? And let's also point out, forced a 15-year-old boy to help dispose of the body well, that, I was fixing body to say, bags. I was fixing to say that I would be, if I were that kid, I would be scared to death of him. Uh, it, it, would, it would make me not sleep well at night to know that he was out. Unbelievable. Uh, well, do you, do you think we ought to be talking to the legislature in the coming session about making some changes here? The governor with a parole board or? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is awesome. on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We may have bled over into the break a little bit. Had a, a slight technical malfunction in the bump there with all the automated systems, but we are back. We appreciate you joining us. Watching uh, the dial today, it is down. It is off the lows, down 94 points. The NASDAQ also down Meta. Meta reported... Uh, rather negatively 
and didn't give a really rosy outlook. That coming on the heels of Microsoft reporting on Tuesday, beating expectations on the top and bottom line. Today we'll get earnings reports from Amazon, and not really sure what to expect on that one, honestly. But the markets are just... uh, Incredibly volatile as the old kangaroo is jumping around, hopping around. We did get a GDP report that was shocking, honestly, in a good way, showing that the economy grew 4.9%, and this is just powered by consumer spending. Now, the president, no doubt, is going to pounce on this, and we're going to hear the continuation of the rhetoric about Bidenomics. I'd love to see a 4% north of 4% GDP growth rate sustained. Love to see that. However, I fear there are headwinds in the offing. And a lot of that stems from refinancing debt that is coming up. A lot of businesses that are going to have to continue to rely on debt financing for various Business operations, capital investments as well. They're sitting on some debt that's going to mature at very low interest rates. And they're going to have to roll that over at considerably higher interest rates. Meantime, price of a home is up dramatically. Just in time for the Generation Z demographic starting to look at buying houses. That's a problem because interest rates are up, and to, to afford a house in this country at the average price of a new home, one must make a household, what, about $110,000, I think we, we saw the other day in the report. That's a lot. First time I think we've ever had the need to pull in six figures to afford a house. So that's a problem. And, of course, this GDP report today, I think, is unsettling to the Fed, and they're likely to keep the accelerator on the interest rate hike button. And that's going to drive interest rates up even higher. You've got a mountain of credit card debt. And the other thing going on is student loan debt repayments have kicked in. And you know who's watching that closely? Are those sellers to the demographic that has student loans, concerned that, well, they're going to cut down on their spending with us because now they got to pay that debt. Now, you remember the president tried to, with the swipe of a pen, forgive about $600 billion of student debt, and the Supreme Court said, no, 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 you don't have the authority. But that's not before he got about $100 billion forgiven, and he's still working all sorts of crazy changes in the rules because they do have that that power down at the agency level to essentially accomplish the same thing. It just delays it somewhat. So that's going on as well. Also, you guys know by now this horrendous mass shooting in Maine. Man, that, that hit the news cycle I was watching the television at about 8.30, and it seems like our time is when that hit. 
I believe, Rhino, the suspect is still at large. Robert Card, his name, the alleged person of interest, Lewiston, Maine. Uh, at this point, the Maine governor this morning said the number of dead has been a little fluid. Would you agree? You've seen, I saw 16, then I saw 22. Now it's 18, is what the Maine governor, Janet Mills, said. 13 injured. Just incredible. Uh, three locations is what I'm seeing that were involved in the shooting. The governor said that Mr. Card should be considered armed and dangerous, and based on our investigation, we believe this is someone that should not be approached. Now, this is another situation, I believe, where this individual suffers from mental illness. Seems like that's always at play. What I hope is that this isn't some sort of perverted hate crime and that this isn't in some crazy way related to what's going on in Gaza, but I've seen some law enforcement experts, the folks that kind of study this stuff from a psychological perspective, indicate a strong suspicion that that's the case. And that would be terrible. So there's an arrest warrant out for eight counts of murder at this point. Said the reason it's eight did authorities is because 10 people have not yet been identified. As those people are identified, the counts will probably go to the total, which now is being reported as 18. Just sad. Totally sad. Um, You know, I hope he gets brought to justice. Unbelievable. Terrible assault. You know who Riley Gaines is? She's been on the program before. We've been pleased to have her in, in Mississippi. And on midday, she's the NCAA swimmer. Been very outspoken about transgender females' participation in women's sports. She, you could say, was a victim of such when she lost NCAA swimming championship last year to Leah Thomas, a male who is at best an average Male NCAA swimmer? I think that's putting it nicely. Nicely, right? Like down to 200 and something in the nation uh, in in terms of ranking. Uh, But, hey, look, he just wanted to be happy. Hadn't he actually been on record as saying that? I just wanted to be happy. Somebody, one of those transgender athletes that switched over said, I just wanted to be happy. So I'm just going to go make other people unhappy. I'm going to encroach on their rights and freedoms and just what is common sense, honestly. Well, where I'm going with this is she's been scheduling speaking engagements all over the country. She came here. I went to an event, quite nice, at uh, River Hills Club, what, about a month ago, the governor as well attended. A packed house, honestly. And she brought one of her one of her friends that's also an NCAA swimmer, that swam on the team at Penn with Leah Thomas and talked about her experience in dealing with a man on the swimming team she's on. Well, you know this group, Eventbrite. That is the, the digital application that is widely used to 
schedule events and have people register for events. It's it's actually a very convenient and efficient tool for that task. Well, they've removed events listing. Uh, they've removed Riley Gaines events from their listing. They say it that it uh, it violates their community guidelines and terms of service. Quote, we have determined that your event is not permitted on the Eventbrite marketplace as it violates our community guidelines and terms of service with which all users agree to comply. Because of what? Because she speaks out about biological males competing with biological females in sports? Is that some sort of perverted hate speech? I guess it is, right? To the left. That's where we are. Oh, but just to show you how further freaking hypocritical Eventbrite is, no problem with scheduling pro-Hamas anti-Israel events. They're all over that. Help yourself. It's just so dang upside down. Now, this is what their stupid statement says to those who have complained about it. Specifically, we do not allow content or events that through on- or off-platform activity discriminate against. You mean like Hamas? Are you kidding me? Beheading kids? What the hell do they think that is? Harass, disparage, threaten, incite violence against... What? That is insane. This is ridiculous. I mean, this this is the American left. This is the American Democrat Party. This is what this DEI crap has incited. It's evoked lunacy, immorality. Coming right back in the Element Well Studio. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two... On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. A little Joe Walsh. Life's been good to me so far, as the lyrics go. So, uh, Mike Johnson, we were talking about that. He is the Speaker of the House, just elected. He's got a lot of work to do because they've been, like, sitting on the sidelines for three weeks. Bunch of work to get done. He is an evangelical Christian, and I listened to his remarks. I thought they were good. Numerous religious references. He recounted the history of how the motto, In God We Trust, was placed in the House chamber. That, of course, to the chagrin of Democrats, because 
I know it sounds like hyperbole, but just too dang many of them sound like Marxists to me. And Marxism and communism do not recognize the existence of God, of a supreme being. To them, government is the omnipotent, all-powerful. That was good. He, and so he rebuked communism and atheism. And he talked about the Declaration of Independence's use of the word creator. You know that just galls the left. And he noted the presence of uh, Moses on the wall in the House chamber. He cited Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. says, I was reminded of the scripture that says, suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. What we need in this country is more hope. He's been tied to a number of Baptist churches in his home of Shreveport, in Benton, Louisiana. He's a lawyer, communication staffer with the Alliance Defense Fund. That later became known as the Alliance Defending Freedom. That's a conservative Christian legal firm. I think, I'm, I think I've donated to them before because I sure get a lot of communications, and it's, it's good stuff from them. CNN says that Johnson penned a number of editorials while while working at the ADF, including one in which he declared homosexuality as an inherently unnatural and dangerous lifestyle that could lead to the collapse of the entire democratic system. So he really did focus on his religion and Christian values in his speech. He, he made clear the point that the founders in this idea of separation of church and state, what they sought was to protect the church from an encroaching state, not the other way around. It's so true, and that just gets lost on the left in this country. And he stressed that a free society and a thriving nation a republic, require the underpinning of religious and moral virtue. I totally agree. Agree, And, and he issued a fairly stark warning that society's going to crash without this. That made me think about the Nancy Pelosi federal building in San Francisco is no longer fit for occupation. When the federal government stupidly sent everybody home to work from home during the COVID, this building sat largely empty. Now it's been overtaken by homeless and has experienced like 30 drug overdoses in the building. There's like this big open atrium area. And so now... The building's not even available for use. And there's a move afloat in the Congress to remove Pelosi's name from it. How could she possibly not know and sleep at night knowing a building in her hometown that bears her name is a haven for this depravity? And workers have been warned, don't go. It's not safe. 
That's just terrible when you think about that in this country. Terrible. And this is the left. This is what they've done. It's all about this equity crap. That's that's where all this stems. He um he also uh, let's see there was a quote that he had that I thought was really good that we'll get to later on in the program. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who quoted it and a philosopher, and it it was just about the creed of this country. The creed. Is that right, Rhino? I think I got that right. Yep. We are uh, taking a break right here. It's time for Fox News, Super Talk News. When we come back, Dr. Daniel Ennis, president of Delta State University. Get ready. Get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays. We are live from the Element Well studio on this Friday Eve. Welcome back, everyone. And now, Dr. Daniel Ennis, president of Delta State University, joins us. Uh, good to see you there, Dr. Ennis. Thanks for coming on. I'm so glad to be here, Gerard. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me okay? We got you. Yes, sir. Loud and clear. All right. So Great. we've got a couple of articles on the Supertalk website uh, discussing the, the financial situation there at Delta State University. And and it, it sounds like that uh, you've got lots of irons in the fire to try to rectify the situation. Give us an update. Where do things stand right now and what's going on? Well, you know, I'm relatively new to the institution, but since I was hired and since I've gotten here about five months ago, I've been working with my staff and studying. And, you know, what we have is addressable. It's fixable. But we are going to have to look at our budget differently and look at our expenses and sort of tighten things up so we live within our means going forward. Dr. Ennis, do you believe that uh, the current financial situation is a function of declining revenue, increasing expenses, combination of the two? It's a combination of everything that you said. I mean, Delta State has had declining enrollment for over a decade. And given a big chunk of our budget is tuition, every decline in enrollment is effectively a budget reduction, if you think about it. Um, But also, higher ed is expensive. Higher ed is labor-intensive, and it's the kind of labor that really can't be automated very well. So as our expenses go up, as um, things like inflation affect us with everything from Power to lights to uh, software, you know, we have to we have to adjust to the realities of how much money we really have to, to work with up here in the Delta. Yeah. Now, um, it is our understanding that you have created a committee that is tasked with studying this issue and trying to come out with some uh, potential solutions to address the financial uh, constraints. Yes, sir. Uh, what's important is that we preserve and protect our core mission to educate students. And so that means as we move towards solvency, we've got to be very careful that we, um, you know, sort of put some barriers around our 
actual important work of educating Mississippians. And so that means a committee is the best way to do that because you get a lot of opinions, you get a lot of ideas, and you also need to let people have ownership. Um, when you make cuts, you make people unhappy. There'll yeah. be some unhappiness for sure, but one of my aims is to make sure folks know what we're doing, why we're doing it, and they have the same information I do when I make the final calls on what we're going to continue with and what we're going to have to discontinue. Is the Thinking about the most recent uh, financial statements and, and reporting period, is the university cash flow negative right now on a period basis? Today? Yeah. I mean, yeah, at the end of the year, um, without any changes, the university will be in a, in a deficit situation. Now, of course, we have cash on hand that we have to keep uh, for security purposes for um, a rainy day. Yeah. And one of my concerns coming in is that, you know, if you run a deficit year after year, unfortunately, as Delta State has, you eat into that rainy day fund. And then when the rainy day comes, you're in a true crisis. So yeah. the idea here is to right size the budget so every year we end with a surplus, which is responsible budgeting for, for any public entity. Sure. Or private entity, for that matter. But uh, same goal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so sure. is, is there a particular dollar goal that the committee's working on, trying to figure out uh, how to kind of close that gap? Is there is there an objective there, a stated financial objective? Oh, yes. I've been pretty specific. Um, one of the main goals is that we end every year with a contingency, so we build 90 days cash on hand. And that's a pretty standard higher ed um, practice yeah. in, in private sector, too, is 90 days cash is what you need if you ever have a, a tornado or a, or a pandemic. We've all lived through circumstances where you might have an interruption in your in your operations. So, uh, to do that, we need to we need to start saving money at the end of each year. And unfortunately, of late, Delta State has ended each year in the negative, and then used some reserves or some extra cash here, or barred from Peter to pay Paul, if you will. Um, so the ninety days cash is a long term goal. Of course, you can't get there in a year. So the sure. short term goal is we're working on two point four million this fiscal year, um, then about three million next fiscal year. Um, eventually, uh, with enrollment as it is right now. Delta State really should be operating around forty to forty-two million dollars in budget, and and of late it has been spending more than that each year, and we've got to stop that. Okay, so to to get to that goal, then, as you said, you may have to make some very difficult, unpopular decisions that uh, could involve perhaps cutting staff, programs, services, uh, curricula, all the above. Absolutely. And I've been trying to be pretty forthright about that. You know, 77 percent of this university's budget and many university budgets, this is a normal number, 77 percent of our budget is payroll. And so the reality is, is, you know, folks who don't understand higher budgeting might say, well, cut travel or cut commodities or cut this and that. But meaningful cuts at the size are necessary for Delta State will involve payroll. And I have to be upfront about that with folks. Uh, And that means, you know, we, we we have to look at having fewer people on the payroll and fewer dollars going out to service the students we have. But I do want to add that, you know, this is this is not the end of the story. At the same time, we're spending an equal amount of energy on rebuilding our enrollment strategies and bringing in more students and looking at other resources. Because um, I'm not setting the budget based on the enrollment we have now. I'm setting the budget based on the cash we have now. But enrollment can and should increase if we are more aggressive in the market. Yeah. So. 
uh, I then presume you're personally active in those activities, right? Getting out and about and and telling the Delta State story and, and recruiting students to the university. Yes, sir. And the reason I took this job and uh, I had people go, well, why did you go out there with all these problems is there's a great story to be told. There's an extraordinary university up here in the Delta, and the students who come here have a great experience, and we have the capacity for more students to have that great experience. So my personal investment is, you know, I'll go out. I was I was at a high school two nights ago. I'll go out and talk to students directly. Um, and, of course, I work directly with our terrific enrollment team to talk about, you know, who who is hearing about Delta State and who are we missing and who might want to know about the great things we're doing up here in Cleveland, Mississippi, and be part of it. And uh, I've I got to tell you, it's easy to talk about Delta State because it's got such an extraordinary story and great programming. So I love talking to folks about why they might want to consider Delta State, parents, students, anybody, really. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to anybody about the great institution that I work at here. Yeah, absolutely, and a fantastic uh, history and legacy, uh, undoubtedly. Uh, an icon in the state sure of Mississippi. Enough. We want to see it uh, thrive. So what about the IHL, Dr. Ennis? I know you're accountable to them. They're obviously very aware of the situation. You you have to provide those reports and advice. Sure. Uh, have you kind of increased the frequency of communication with them, given the, the situation? Well, I... I I don't have anything to compare it to because, of course, I'm new, but yeah. certainly I'm in regular contact with the IHL. I gave a pretty comprehensive report to them um, at their annual retreat um, in September, and then, of course, I update them uh, through the commissioner as developments warrant. You know, I might email all the commissioners. I might email – I mean, I might email all the trustees. I might yeah. email the commissioner and ask him if he wants to circulate it. Um, I, I hope and believe that they are getting – regular and pertinent information about things here and, and they have been supportive i think um i think i gave them a pretty unvarnished account of what i was facing and then laid out the steps that i intend to take and um they they, they indicated that i should proceed and i think they know that that something has to be done and unfortunately it's come on my watch but but that's okay delta state is is got a great future and it's worth it to do the work now for all the great things that we're going to continue to do up here in, in Mississippi. Now, you did have a, a $2 million infusion uh, not so long ago, a grant to fund the destination graduation uh, program, and that'll certainly mm-hmm. kind of soothe some of the financial uh, pain. Tell us how that'll be used. So that grant, first of all, the timing was great. You know, you know, when you come in a situation like this and you want, you have stories about your institution that that maybe you wish weren't the front page. It's great to have a win. Yeah. Um, and that was a terrific win. I had nothing to do with it. I came in. That grant was already written. Other folks uh, did a great job writing that grant. Uh, but what I really like about that grant is it's it's highly tied to student success. And of course, that's part of our our basically our brand here is that we have a personalized approach. We have faculty who know the student's name. Um, I was talking to an alum the other day, and he had started his college career at a much larger Mississippi university. It doesn't matter which one. <laughs> and he said, at that university, all I did was learn my student number. And then I transferred to Delta State, and people knew my name. And, and that grant is part of that because it's about a student success program where we intervene 
in students' situations when we find out they're having problems. It's an early warning system. It's resources to help a student. You know, we can look at their grades after four weeks and say, hey, we've got to connect you with some tutoring or we've got to work with you on time management or we need gotcha. to give you some academic resources. And that's the kind of thing that a smaller school is nimble enough to do on an individual basis, student by student. We appreciate you coming on, Dr. Anderson, talking about the great Delta State University, and, and we wish you all the best. And I'm sure we'll be talking to you some more. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yes, sir. We're coming right back, folks, in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is Middays. We are live in the Element Well studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. And don't forget... We're going to be remote tomorrow, the Gallo Show, with uh, guest host Lucian Smith, Middays with uh, Gerard, and Sports Talk Mississippi are going to be in Oxford at the Convention Center for the Ole Miss School of Business Banking Symposium, year 20. Looking forward to that. This is going to be a good one, folks, and I encourage you to tune in. Uh, Of course, we're talking to lots of folks involved in the banking sector. This one will be especially of interest, I believe, because of the many, many dynamics occurring in the financial industry with uh, interest rates all over the place. And like we were saying earlier, with all this debt turning out and being refinanced. And you know, the other thing I saw a report on yesterday, Rhino, is lots of owners of really big real estate, uh, as in buildings, I should say, particularly office buildings, are walking away from them. And what I mean by that is they've got a, a commercial mortgage on those properties that they took out with commercial banks secured by the building, and they can't make ends meet. They don't need them. And they're just walking away saying, okay, you got a building. I ain't paying. That's not good for the banks. They just end up with a bunch of property they don't want. And usually the only way they get any money out of that is to fire sell them. And uh, sometimes you see that with a house. You've seen situations with houses under construction, especially expensive houses, and the owners run into some sort of financial difficulty, and they just stop. And the bank's into it for a certain amount. It's half finished. Then they're in the real estate business. They don't want to be in the real estate business. They want to be in the business of selling money. But they're willing to take security in the form of hard assets such as real estate. This is a problem. I'm I'm going to be asking some of them about that. I don't know that it's a big deal in Mississippi because we don't have uh, lots of big cities with tall office buildings in them. 
where this is particularly playing out. But it, it, the overall industry is affected, and that affects everybody in that sector. So that's going to be a good, uh, a good show tomorrow, I think, to get their take on all of that and just uh, and their, their outlook for the economy. Uh, all banks have economists that work for them, that guide them in, in their business decisions. So it's going to be good. Looking forward to that. Got a bit of fodder for us. Okay. Although at the time when this happened, it was certainly not fodder. It was something to be taken very seriously. But now that the all clear has been given, I think everybody has to take a step back and just laugh at the, the ludicrous nature of this situation. At Oregon State University, two days ago now, an alert went out telling students to stay away from the Starship food delivery robots. They were advising students not to open any food delivery robots and to avoid all robots until further notice as authorities are responding. Apparently, someone called in a bomb threat on the food delivery robots. (laughs) So you had the entire campus running away from these little slow-moving robots that are usually filled with takeout because somebody threatened a bomb. Now, like I said, at the time, you have to take it seriously. You have to take a bomb threat seriously. But now that the the smoke is cleared and the all clear has been given, this is 2023, folks. Unbelievable. Running away from the bombs in the food delivery robots. (laughs) Well, anytime I'm on campus up in Oxford, they're just all over the place, the the food delivery services. And they're, they're pretty good, honestly. I mean, as, as far as navigating their way around campus and staying out of the way and stopping for traffic, all the stuff they're supposed to do, they're pretty neat. Um, I've, I've never actually seen it stop for whomever the buyer is, to, you know, to, to terminate the delivery. I just see them, <laughs> I see them traveling around campus, wheeling around there. Look like little tanks, kind of. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, I think six wheels maybe on them and... Some of these them, yeah. are, yeah. I'd say they're probably what three feet high, uh, maybe. Uh, Some the, of them have the little blinking light on, yes, a, on a post and a flag. Yeah, <laughs> a little flag. Oh gosh, this is speaking of which, talking about housing. A poll recently shows that a majority of potential home buyers, a little more fodder here, would consider buying a house they believe is haunted. That is according to a survey released by Zillow. <laughs> and the article You cut me a good deal, I'll be chilling with the ghosts. <laughs> Shedding light on just how spooked Americans are by the bone chilling housing market. <laughs> That's what the report says. Pretty clever use of words there, wordsmithing. 67% of prospective buyers said they could be persuaded to purchase a haunted house. It comes down to cost, just like you said. 35% of all respondents indicated they'd be willing to buy a haunted house if the home were more affordable than comparable and presumably ghost-free homes in the area. Oh, gosh. I'll be sitting there having coffee with Casper every morning if you give me a good deal. (laughs) Zillow conducted the ghoulish survey in September and October. Wow. 
Well, that's what happens when mortgage rates ascend to a 23-year high of 7.63%. That's a bit higher than it was in October of 21 at 2.1%. That's because the Fed's been over there hiking interest rates like crazy. And Joe Biden seems to be oblivious to all this, running around telling everybody how great everything is. Credit card rates in the 30% range now. And folks are racking up the credit card debt. So I don't think we've yet seen the effect of the Fed's rate hiking campaign. I don't think it's fully set in, fully baked, but I think it's going to. And we're going to be on the lookout. So, all right, so Michael Guest tells me he's up in Washington, says he's on the floor voting. He's going to try to call in and give us an update because we got a new Speaker of the House. We were talking about that earlier Mike Johnson. Now, I think Mike Johnson is is going to be fine, but I will just caution. I've done this on my social media, too. Don't be too exuberant. And you know where I'm seeing the most exuberance? is because of his unwillingness to vote to certify the election. We're still stuck in that. That he, he stood up. He didn't buckle to the pressure. Okay, I get it, but let's fast forward. The whole catalyst for this blow-up of the House was the budget. Matt Gates says, no, nope, we're going to do this in regular order. We're not going to keep with these continuing resolutions that just continue the spending as has already been appropriated, just continue that extended out for some period of time under the resolution, detailed in the resolution. And we're supposed to negotiate 12 different spending bills, each of which covers a different category of the discretionary pot of spending. One is defense, for example. I'm I'm with him. I'm for that. But I caution. Don't get so exuberant into thinking, oh, that's it. We're going to get rid of the deficit and balance the budget and start chipping away at the debt. We got Mike Johnson, a true conservative in there. I'm telling you folks, horse hockey. I have reported and predicted six months ago a $2 trillion deficit for 23. What did it come in at? $2 trillion. Six months ago we started talking about it. You could see the trend. It wasn't hard to figure out. Simple math. All right. If you didn't have blinders on. Right, but there, but the president was still running around bragging about how he I cut the deficit. Remember all that crap over and over again. And I kept calling him out. No, you're wrong, Mr. President. You're not paying attention to what's going on right now. Put the ice cream cone down for a minute. But here's the deal: next year, 2024. Here's what I think: 2.3 trillion dollars. So then, what's going to happen? We're going to get mad at Mike Johnson, and here's why. Because we don't have the willpower to address the drivers of the deficit, and that's mandatory spending. And while I certainly applaud him for discussing the need to to insert some fiscal responsibility into governing, he failed to say anything about runaway, statutory, on autopilot, mandatory spending because he knows if he does he ain't going to get reelected to his house seat next time 
When we come back, I'll talk about what I think we need to address that issue in the way of leaders. Stay with us in the Element Well studio. Attention, adoring fans! It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, I want you to know I just jammed my fingers between the door and the... It's a heavy door. It's a very heavy door in my hand, as you know. When you open it, I was trying to keep it from from crashing into the door frame there on the other side. But my fingers ended up doing that job, and now my fingers are killing me. See, I'm red. Mm. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, just let it slam next to him. Oh, yeah, I think I will. I'd probably bring the whole studio down. <laughs> it's a, it's a door. I mean, it's a heavy door, man. Oh, gosh. We're back with you, though. Uh, so we are just talking about Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. By the way, Michael Guest said he could call in if uh, we want to talk to him. He just sent me a note talking about... Um, uh, let's see. He says, we're on the floor voting. We should be done right in time for me to call in. So maybe 12.05, top of the hour. I'll let, I'll let the congressman know. We'll get a report from him. That ought to be interesting. Reform, baby, reform on the ceasefire text line. So Ben from Madison, go back to that, ask a question about uh, our interview with Flip Weinberg. He says, uh, did he have an opinion whether or not the legislature should do something about the parole board? And I apologize. Yeah, we uh, we we bled over into the into the break. And so I apologize for that. Yeah, I did ask him that, uh, Ben. And I wouldn't say, Rhino, that he gave like just a real specific definitive. Yeah, we ought to do this. But he just said that when you have this kind of heinous crime, Something needs to be considered about just letting these people out because you think they've been rehabilitated. And he said it felt, he felt like the parole board is a little too sympathetic. I think that was the word that he used, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. um, to those that are incarcerated. And this is clearly a case of that. I, I just don't see how. When you think about it, I mean, when you have a prosecutor who see, who saw a lot of this in his career saying this is really brutal, this was gruesome, I think is the word he used, you just, I guess you could say you have to leave the door open that anything's possible. It just seems implausible, though, doesn't it, that someone who committed that sort of crime could just magically be rehabilitated, and I'd... I mean, I'm wide I mean, if open. The man to that. is manipulative, manipulative enough to have a 15 year old help him. What's to say he's not manipulative? Manipulative. I'm having a hard time yeah. with the word today. Enough to sway the board. I, I completely agree with you, and that that's the part about the crime that got my attention more than anything is when he it was reported as part of the trial that he forced a 15 year old 
to dispose of the bodies of his victims in bags out at Shiloh Park in Brandon. I don't know exactly where. It's a big park. It's a big facility. I don't know, but that's pretty much a red flag to me that I don't think this person's been rehabilitated. So that's a concern. Ben also says we got way too many universities. We don't need eight schools and also have the number of JUCOs we have. I know it's too political, but the legislature should really look to merge a few of the universities. Yeah, I think you're right, Ben. It's political, and that would be a tall order, and I I just don't anticipate um, that happening. Uh, But I hear you. It's it's, uh, it's a problem nationwide. We have been fortunate in that some of our schools have actually increased enrollment and are really in good financial shape, but we have some in Mississippi that that are more consistent with the national trend where enrollment is down, and that's causing a problem. There's no doubt, and and like Dr. Ennis said, labor's the big cost, and labor's up considerably. So sounds like, however, he's up for the task of trying to right the ship there financially at Delta State. And I think he's right in pursuing a new students and recruiting. Uh, you need to increase enrollment, but you've also, at the same time, you've got to be realistic about cutting expenses, and that typically means headcount. And that that's the point he was trying to make. Hey, 70% of our expenses are, are labor. And, you know, that's sort of analogous to what we've been saying about the federal budget. When Every time I see these folks in Congress talk about, yeah, we gotta, we got to rein in that that's irresponsible, reckless spending, I'm with them. But just keep in mind, anytime they say that, generally speaking, without really addressing the mandatory portion, which is the part that's driving the deficit and the debt, and, and uh, comprises 70% of total outlays. And I'm disappointed that Mr. Johnson said nothing about it yesterday. And while I do think that he's got conservative bona fides, there's no doubt about that, and he did say something about addressing the budget and through regular order. Just I'm not optimistic that that's going to really result in any material change to the deficit. We're still going to spend more by a long shot than we take in. And I think we'll be north of $2 trillion next year, even while he's Speaker of the House. If they came out with a budget on the discretionary side that cuts that component of spending, let's just say by 5%, which honestly would be huge. Um. And that would that would only and that would be across the board defense and uh, the non-defense domestic spending is what it's called. It still leaves a 1.6 trillion dollar hole. It's not sufficient. Is the point? So I don't um, I don't know what his plan is, but we shall see. I just caution folks about getting too enthusiastic and too. Um, optimistic about how things may change and, and really produce any any meaningful outcome. I did hear him say one of his first resolutions, I think I got this right, Rhino, that um, 
those who are in this country on student visas and so forth that are that are participating in these pro-Hamas rallies, essentially supporting what this country deems as terrorist, should be sent packing and not be enrolled in American universities. Uh, is that uh, the nature of the resolution? I, I see you looking at it right now. I believe that's the case, and some nine Democrats voted against it, showing their true colors. But that that made sense to me. What uh, the representative he actually talked about it during his uh, speech, which was twelve minutes or so, good good uh, length, said that it was appropriate to dispense with the pomp and circumstance and the ceremonies because the American people's needs were urgent. He said the hour is late, as I recall. This is what he said: the hour is late and the need is great thought that was a good statement. He's absolutely right. Let's get to work. All hands on deck. I want to send a message to our freedom-loving allies that the House of Representatives in America is back in business. I thought that was good. I really do. Um, but he got this resolution through. I have no idea what happens to it in the Senate. I should hope it would pass on a bipartisan basis. I'm disturbed that nine Democrats voted against it, you could probably name them, the Hamas caucus, right, opposed it. But Yeah, it was strange bedfellows in the uh, opposition to the resolution. Who, because you got folks like Jamal Bowman, Corey Bush, squad, AOC, squad, Ilhan Omar, squad, Rashida Tlaib, squad. and then Thomas Massey. Yeah, what did he, yeah, of, of course, uh, Died in the wall, libertarian. I think is how he would hold himself up. He's a guy that had a Christmas card a couple of years ago that had every member of the family holding a rifle or a gun. Uh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the other thing I hear, which we've debunked a thousand times, I heard it again this morning that we've got to stop this reckless spending because all we're doing is borrowing money from China, and that's just categorically false. How can a sitting member of the Senate, this was a senator, say that? That's just not right. And it's easy to determine. All you got to do is do is go to the Department of Treasury's website. All that information is available. It takes a little effort to dig through it, but there are countless articles and white papers out there that are current that give a complete total breakdown of the country's debt by owner of that debt. Domestic and foreign. China owns $800 billion of $33 trillion. De minimis amount. In fact, they've been selling off their American debt because they're struggling financially. They don't have excess capital to invest. They're doing everything in their power to keep their, their real estate bubble from popping. That is true. It's a big problem over there. We are stepping aside for a break right here on Middays. We're going to try to get in touch with Congressman Michael Guest, get his take on the new speaker, etc. That'll be after the noon break. Stay with us. We'll return. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right. We are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Thank you. 
what it is. It's urgent. That's what Lou Graham, a foreigner, says, bumping us into this segment here on Middays. Indoctrination by the left starts at an early age, says Gary in the Berg. I just saw Rhino report on the, on the TV in the studio here. New York City high school protesters, high school kids, in favor, of course, of Hamas, anti-Israel. Man. Been watching some cartoons and videos, Gary goes on to say, with the grandkids and have to turn them off and put on the no-watch list. This indoctrination continues through grade school and beyond in a variety of ways. If this is allowed to go unchallenged and not changed, then the country's lost. The left is winning the battle for young people, and conservatives have conceded this to them for decades, and it continues on, and, and, it, and it really amplifies Gary wants to get into college because, unfortunately... It just doesn't appear too many with conservative leanings have any desire uh, to enter academia and pursue that as a career. And they've getting they've getting a little dose of medicine from uh, some of these philanthropists that have closed up the checkbook at these various institutions that really fail to react and adequately denounce Hamas actions. Seemed very pro-Palestine to me. And I think a lot of other people feel the same way. And this is why Speaker of the House Johnson says, at a minimum, all these people in this country that are receiving an, an education in America and have visas to do so, if you're supporting terrorist organizations, you're out of here. I support that. I think I, we, there's got to be some consequences. I'm not for suppressing free speech. I support their right to be stupid and to be on the wrong side. But where we do have some power, such as this, it should be exercised. This is my my grief with the Biden administration. We should be interdicting and impounding Iraqi ships that are carrying oil, drones, because uh, Iranian, pardon me, not Iraq, because they're behind this. And now there's more evidence we've seen coming out of our intelligence community that says, yeah, pretty sure Iran is behind this. Duh! Hamas is their proxy. They've not held back on their goal, their conquest, to destroy Israel, wipe it off the map. And we have idiots in this country that subscribe to that crap. And support it, condone it. It is it is concerning. Jerry in Waynesboro says five years ago ago oil would be 140 a barrel with a Middle East turmoil. Yeah, it's hard to say. There hasn't been Jerry um, any notable interruptions in supply at this point. And keep in mind the people who benefit from it, Russia and Iran, benefit from the sale of oil that are. Uh, executing these wars and these actions, uh, they're producing more, honestly, to make up for for uh, what we could have been producing. Man, oh man. So if somebody doesn't like uh, me getting kind of passionate and loud, I'm just looking at that on the ceasefire text line. Okay. <laughs> you you clearly don't know me. 
based on your statement. I'm not going to read it, and I hope you got happy about sending that, and that's fine. Yes, I was successful business, and I can assure you that that doesn't happen by accident. Well, let's see. What We had a person that's getting on to you here, Rhino. What the heck's that all about? Oh, he's just in his feelings because I used the word stupid. I guess a hit dog will holler. <laughs> okay. Tim and McGee says the building, that's uh, the Pelosi building, is a lot like her being useless that it is. <laughs> Thanks for the Delta State interview. I read the article. That's on the Supertalk website. There's a couple of them. That's from Michael and Brooke. Haven, latest governor's race polling. I haven't seen anything um, lately. I mean, there's been some outliers, I guess. Uh, the, you know, it, We're at the point where these polls are, are being funded by... Yeah, the quote-unquote latest poll came from the Democrat Governors Association. And right. It's slanted as the t- leaning tower of Pisa. Yeah. Brother, our wonderful country is circling the bowl and honestly don't see a path back. Interesting. Rehabilitation is non-existent in prison, says uh, Jerry Clark with Clark Construction. I'm not sure if I totally agree with that, Jerry. I think certain people are beyond rehabilitation. I think this animal, James Williams, was one of them. Unfortunately, Gerard, I doubt the resolution will get brought up by Chuck Schumer talking about Mike Johnson's resolution to essentially send everybody packing that's in this country from abroad going to school that are supporters of Hamas. Big G, you coming to good old boys tonight? I am. That's from the Horn Lake Lions Club. Coming right back. And now. Another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio on this Friday Eve. We're pleased to have with us now Congressman Michael Guest calling in from Washington. Congressman, thanks for joining us. Gerard, good talking to you. Uh, sorry, I know we tried last week several times uh, to be able to speak and uh, weren't able to make the timing work. So thank you for your patience and uh, appreciate you having me on today. You bet. We appreciate you calling in. So we got us a new speaker. Uh, Speaker Johnson. Yep. Uh, what What do you think? And and uh, did you see that coming? Uh, I, I did not see that coming uh, until uh, I guess we were into the uh, after Jim Jordan pulled out, uh, and when you had Tom Emmer and Mike kind of as the leading two of that next group of people. Uh, that's really where I really saw Mike uh, begin to, to surface as a as a legitimate candidate. Uh, we kind of had to go through, if you will, the next in line: uh, Steve Scalise, uh, Jim Jordan, Tom Emery. When uh, none of those three candidates were able to get to 217, 
uh, it, it did become clear to many of us uh, that Mike was most likely going to be uh, the next man up. You know, one of the things I think that worked in Mike's favor uh, is though he is in leadership, he's not at a high level of leadership within the conference. Uh, and then Mike uh, really doesn't have uh, any political enemies that I'm aware of in Washington, which is extremely rare. Uh, most everyone up here has at least half a dozen people or more that probably don't like them and would like to see them not succeed. Uh, and Mike's not like that. Uh, he is a very humble God-fearing man, uh, someone who is a constitutional scholar, uh, having uh, worked previously uh, uh, as an attorney, uh, dealing with a lot of First Amendment uh, issues. Uh, and I think he's uniquely um, uh, has a unique skill set uh, that is much needed right now in our nation's capital. Yeah. Well, at a minimum, we're back to work, right, Congressman, because we've, we've uh, been out of business for about three weeks now. That's exactly right. So uh, we were out of uh, business for about 22 days, unable to uh, move legislation. Uh, after Mike was elected yesterday, uh, first thing he brought to the floor was the resolution uh, supporting Israel and condemning Hamas. Uh, that passed o- overwhelmingly. Uh, there were a handful of Democrats uh, and I think one Republican, Thomas Massey, who did not support that. But uh, that uh, passed as we expected that it would. Uh, and then today we're back on the floor uh, debating and voting on amendments to uh, one of our appropriations bills, the energy and water bill. Uh, and so I just left the floor uh, after 18 amendment votes uh, that uh, we were able to work through in about an hour and a half. Uh, we expect to come back for a second round of votes uh, this afternoon or this evening. Uh, and then if all goes well, I hope to be able to take the uh, late, uh, direct American flight home and uh, sleep in my bed tonight. It'll be about 11 o'clock getting home, but it'll be nice to be home and Absolutely. maybe get a chance to see you tomorrow at yeah. coffee at Larry Swalewalt. Yeah, um, and of course, uh, I, I think uh, you, you might be headed to the game in Oxford on Saturday. Is that what I hear? I, I saw Haley the I other am. night. I am. Yeah. So, um, I am. You, so uh, come excited by about us. getting to Oxford for uh, the uh, Ole Miss Vandy game. Uh, and I get a chance to see uh, my oldest son, who's in school up there. Absolutely. And, uh, then the following week, I'll be in Starkville for State Kentucky. So it would be nice <laughs> to be home and get to uh, take in some college football. The weather's finally getting to be football weather. Yeah. So, uh, looking forward to enjoying both those weekends. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, all right, so Representative Johnson, the speaker now, the the hard work begins. He may have the toughest job uh, in Washington, honestly. Uh, it's not easy, the, the various things on the table that have to be addressed. Of course, first and foremost, we we got to appropriate some money because we're going to run out in a uh, little less than a month now, middle of November is uh, how much funding is included in the resolution that was passed, which honestly was the the catalyst for all this chaos in in the House. My concern, Congressman, is is that we're going to come away with arguably a spending level that's probably similar to what we have, uh, even though I agree we should pursue regular order. That that ought to be the, the way the House conducts its business, and that means passing 12 separate bills that, that uh, fund the, the various categories of discretionary spending. But 
Um, and, and you know, Speaker McCarthy put a re- resolution on the table that cut the non-defense portion significantly, uh, $250 billion. Chuck Schumer said it's DOA in the Senate. How are we going to get anything done that we can get through the Senate? Well, you know, you're exactly right. First and foremost, that uh, uh, Speaker Johnson's plate is full. Um, you mentioned the fact that we're just outside of three weeks of uh, government funding running out. Uh, we have passed in the House four of the 12 appropriations bills, uh, a fifth that we're going through amendments and okay. may be able to be may be able to pass that energy and water appropriations bill out of the House uh, either today or early next week. Uh, but unfortunately, the Senate has passed none of those. So even once we get to the point to where we've passed the large majority of our appropriations bills, as you know, and many of your listeners know, that the House and the Senate then have to marry their versions together uh, in conference uh, and come up with something that, as you mentioned, could pass the House and Senate. Um, you know, in addition to those um, two major spending uh, priorities uh, that w- we have to move forward on. Uh, we know internationally we've seen the events that have happened uh, in the Middle East. Uh, there's going to be uh, at some point an aid package for Israel. Uh, we see that this administration wants to tie that Israeli aid with additional aid to the Ukraine as well as aid to Taiwan uh, and additional funding for the southern border. Uh, at the uh, I believe the total cost is $106 billion, and $60 billion of that uh, would be going directly to Ukraine. So over half of that spending bill would be going to Ukraine. Uh, I think 14 to $15 billion would be uh, earmarked uh, for Israel and for their defense. And so that's something that we're going to have to take up as a Congress. Uh, I'm hopeful, uh, and I believe many people on the Republican side want to see those uh, support bills broken out individually, that we should not be forced to vote on one uh, omnibus spending bill to support uh, Israel and to support Ukraine and Taiwan. Each of those should be broken into individual votes. Now, we also have things that we have to do between now and the end of the year. Uh, we have to pass the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, we've got to pass FAA reauthorization, uh, farm bill, uh, flood insurance, FISA. I mean, we have a multitude of really major issues that are on our plate that we need to be able to address between now and the end of the year. And I'm not, I, I don't know that we can get to all of them. Uh, but hopefully that, that we can make progress on many of those. Uh, and so this speaker really uh, has a uh, a long to-do list uh, as he's trying to put together his staff, trying to uh, put together the calendar for the rest of the year. Uh, so Speaker Johnson may have uh, the hardest job uh, for sure in Washington, D.C., <laughs> uh, because he's got a lot to do without a lot of time to get the work done in. Do you feel like he can effectively, I guess, gain some degree of, of control and, and just uh, exert some influence uh, over the conference? It seems pretty pretty fragmented right now. You know, I'm optimistic in the fact that uh, every Republican on the House floor yesterday voted for Mike Johnson. Yeah. Uh, that's something that we've not seen this Congress when – Speaker McCarthy ran it, took 15 rounds on the floor. We know that Steve Scalise pulled out of the race because he didn't have the floor votes, uh, that 
Jordan uh, was unable to get uh, the votes on the floor. Uh, uh, Tom Emmer pulled out because he was not going to be able to get the votes. And so I think that what we see with Mike is uh, he is a person that the entire conference can rally behind. Uh, again, he has a very difficult job because uh, while we're all Republicans, uh, we come from different parts of the country. We have uh, some of uh, us are more conservative than others, and so he's going to have to balance uh, the very conservative districts uh, like mine and Trent Kelly and Mike yep. Ezell with some of the more moderate districts, say, in New York or California. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, But I do think he has a skill set that he will be able to unite the party together. Well, I'm glad we got somebody in place so we can start doing work. That's that's the most important thing. And I, I maybe this the entire ordeal, Congressman. We got 30 seconds or so left. Maybe it'll unite folks, and and we'll focus on getting work done, and maybe less on personalities. I hope so. Uh, and uh, you know, and again, Mike is a humble, godly man, and I think that uh, he is well designed to lead our party during this time. And I, and I hope. Uh, and I'm going to work hard to see that he's successful. Appreciate you calling in, as uh, as always, and I uh, look forward to seeing you over the weekend. Good deal. Thank you, my friend. Have a great day. You too. That's Congressman Michael Guest. We're coming right back. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. Today, baby. So, we were talking before we were pleased to visit with the congressman, Michael Guest, about what's happening in Washington, about uh, the governor's race here in Mississippi. So, you were discussing a poll that was completed by whom? The Democrat Governors Association. Okay, which is a big donor to Mr. Presley. Correct. And what did it find? That Tate is ahead by 1%. 1%. Okay. I think it's uh, the final tally will show that Governor Reeves will prevail by 5 to 7. That's my, that's my gut feel. That's my prediction at this point. Uh, they're down there at Hobnob speaking today, and I'm sure we'll hear more about that. They're probably speaking as we are doing the show here. That is the schedule. I also just received yet another email from the Presley camp. Actually, it's uh, the Democrats in Mississippi that, uh, let's see, let me look at the uh, the title of the email. It's too late. No, pardon me. It's too little to Tate. State Democratic leadership lambast Tate Reeves' scheme to tax rural hospitals. Huh? 
It's just more typical nonsense from the Democrat caucus. That kind of sounds like that long thread I had yesterday with uh, the person who shall remain nameless. It's the same stupidity as they're not going to learn about Jackie Robinson. (laughs) It's what they said. I've witnessed that, that in reference to the bill that is popularly described as the anti-CRT bill, and it really does not. It just simply simply requires in Mississippi's public schools that no one can be, uh, no instruction can say that any individual or group is superior to another based on their race, gender, ethnicity, you know, the whole long list, sexual orientation, creed, etc. You just can't teach that one is superior or inferior to the other. Simple as that. Remember, it's really Which short. Wouldn't that, by definition, be considered equity? It would be. Um, equitable education? But, you know, when it comes to this fixation on the distant past, they just want that to dominate the, the pedagogy. So the party of equity doesn't really want equitable? No, absolutely not. It's the Ibram Kendi. The guy who absconded with, what, 30 million bucks, the anti-racist speaker. He's a speaker and an activist, speaker because he's getting paid handsomely to run around the country spewing this crap. He's the one who famously said that past racism has to be mitigated with present racism and present with future. So he condones racism. That's what he says. But here's the thing. Reverse racism is still racism, and it's immoral. But they don't really see it that way. They, they see it as... Because Democrats have always been the party of racism. It's, they see it as justified. I, I agree. But this, uh, yeah, that bill, I do recall members of the Democrat Party and the State House of Representatives going to the podium to tell the body there, that this bill, although it said nothing of the sort, would mean that school children would not learn about many great black figures of history in the state and across the nation. Specifically said they would not know about how Jackie Robinson broke the race barrier in professional baseball. Simply not true. It's just not true. Nobody ever said that or suggested that. That's got nothing to do with uh, the essence, the subject matter of the bill. The language, it means something. The language, the words on the paper that they voted on do mean something. And the language simply instructs public schools in Mississippi, you can't teach that one person or group, based on these various characteristics, race, gender, ethnicity, creed, nationality, are superior or inferior to another. It's crazy to me that we even have to pass a law to do that. But you know why? Because people want to teach that, unfortunately. And we're seeing that in place across the nation, this whole idea of privilege and and true CRT, which says that, that the nation is divided into oppressors and the oppressed, and that Structural racism is embedded into all of America's institutions. That is being taught in schools across the nation, as well as in corporations in our own military, sadly. 
So we simply passed a law in Mississippi that says you can't do that in a public school. I, I can't imagine why anybody would object to that. It's, it's like you said. It would be condoning discrimination. I don't Could it be it. they secretly want to discriminate? Could it be they've always been the party of discrimination? I think it's a combination of that and some some sort of of power, I guess, that is derived from just perpetuating that narrative, whether it applies or not. And I say again, you know, kids, well, that goes back to my axiom that the supply of racism doesn't hold up to the demand for racism. No doubt about that. Absolutely, and there there are some. Uh, very prominent black scholars who have actually said that. There's Shelby Steele is one. I mean, he talks about it all the time. And he, of course, attributes it to mostly to American white elitist liberals. And that's my concern with it when it comes to Mr. Presley is that's who's supporting his campaign. Are they going to be expecting some favors in return? Along I mean, it's the Democrat strongholds that don't think students of color can graduate with their peers. Right. Exactly right. We we uh, shared earlier the story in uh, the state of Oregon that one is no longer required a student to prove they can read and are proficient in the basics of mathematics to earn a high school diploma because that uh, is a little too much pressure on certain uh, races, and it it interferes with the the equity agenda. It's how is that benefiting? It's also the Democrats that don't believe people of color know how to get a driver's license or a photo ID. So true. It's almost like if you applied their standards from a generation ago, they would be calling themselves racists. <laughs> That's absolutely true. <laughs> absolutely true. The, uh, so this email from the Democrat leadership, the Democrat Party, just released a little while ago, says that Tate Reeves refuses to comment on his failure as a governor and how his policies have cost Mississippians lives. Really? I don't think the people in my district would describe what they see in our communities as Mississippi momentum. That's something that the governor uh, enjoys uh, touting. I totally agree with him. Tate Reeves doesn't care about people. He cares about power and a so-called solution for the hospital crisis. Shows well, that's that, projection if I ever heard it. I guarantee you, if this were about people, his big plan would have included in, ensuring the working poor. It's 100% about Medicaid expansion. That's that's just all there. They're fixated on it, man. It's just unbelievable. It's because they're convinced somehow a government program that pays pennies on the dollar is going to save a hospital that can't make ends meet. Or more, I would say, in addition, I guess I would say, that they've, they've got this view that these people who don't have insurance are not receiving any medical care and treatment well if that were the see this is this is the problem with the argument i got into this on this long thread i had yesterday so on the one hand you're saying that okay the hospitals have lost out on a significant amount of money about 12 billion dollars since medicaid expansion was available that math is actually fairly accurate 
Um, okay. But on the other hand, you're saying that people don't have insurance and they can't get medical care. Okay, so that doesn't add up, right? That, that's illogical. It, they wouldn't have lost money, the hospitals would not, had people without insurance not received medical care. So which is it? Just like the left wouldn't have any standards if it weren't for double standards, they wouldn't have any logic if it wasn't for circular logic. That, that It's exactly what that is. Which is it? They're getting care and it's not being reimbursed, or because we don't have the program, they're not getting care. Because otherwise, if they're not getting care and they're not going to the hospitals and to the doctor, well, then we don't have a problem. But people would be out dying in the streets, and that's obviously not happening. Just be honest about the deal. We're coming right back with half an hour left in the Element Well studio. Bring it on! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on! On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio. Shaq Bowie and Biloxi says, Gerard, I'm all about backing Israel, but I do have a question. How many innocent women and children have to be victims of collateral, collateral of war, collateral damage, I think it means, of war in Gaza had to die before it equals the 1,400 Jewish people that were killed? Where's the break-even number? Yeah, so I, here's what I think about that, Shaq Bully. The uh, Hamas, I believe, has to be destroyed. I think they have to be eradicated. They will continue to be a menace to society. Here's the difference. They are deliberately, intentionally attacking, killing, murdering, brutalizing innocent civilians. It's not collateral damage. It's the target. Agree? Yes. Israel, on the other hand, is even giving warning. Get the hell out of the way. We're coming in to take these terrorists out because our country cannot survive. And frankly, I'm not sure the globe, the globe can sustain without ridding it of these maggots. That's just a fact. That's the key difference. Israel is not instructing It's military. It's IDF. Go kill innocent civilians and do it in the most brutal, horrific way. And by the way, get video of it so we can parade it around and celebrate it. Israel's schools do not teach their kids to hate other people. They don't teach them. Our goal, by the way, is to wipe off the face of the earth our neighboring enemies. But when you attack innocent civilians, and you know they're planning more right now, I fear they're inside this country because of Biden's refusal to secure the border and planning attacks in this country. That's the difference. And I think we have to be 
cognizant of that. I think we have to recognize that. Israel has made it clear, we're not coming in to kill innocent civilians, but if you're in the way, and, and let's be honest, Israel's not using civilians as human shields. Hamas is. That's proven. That's why they set up some of their command facilities and outposts in civilian structures. They use civilians. That's why they've taken people hostage. Israel's goal is to wipe off the face of the earth these terrorists. Is that, and that's the difference. So it, it shouldn't be, shock bully shouldn't be some, some sort of equation in mathematical problem. Well, you got this many, we're going to get this many. I understand what you're saying and you're in your concern. But unfortunately, I don't know any other way to get to these bad guys. Because they're using innocent civilians as human shields. and Either against their will or willingly. That's right. Then there's no way to know. Because like you said, Israel's giving warning. Israel's saying, look, if you're in this area, get out now. Because in 24 hours, the bombs are coming down. And then after that 24 hours has passed, they do the knock-knock, where they drop a dud on the top of the building and go, get out. Right. And then they level the building. Right. That And that's honestly unheard of. And, and again, they just want to live in peace. And what Hamas and the terrorists want to do and their adversaries is they want to wipe them off the planet. That's not Israel's goal. They just want to be left the hell alone. And that's that, the other facet. Israel is targeting Hamas. Right. They're telling the civilians to leave because we're targeting the terrorists. Whereas the terrorists paraglided over the border for the sole purpose of killing innocents. Right. For maximum effect. That's what they do. They're cowards. On the ceasefire tax line, the actions of Hamas have led to this reaction from Israel. Hamas is responsible for the innocent killing of people if any of these people in Gaza are truly innocent. that That's right. I mean, it, it was... It was provoked by them. I mean, Israel's response is not unilateral and unprovoked. Hamas was. I mean, how cowardly can you be to go parasail into a music festival? A music festival for peace. Right. I saw that. That's crazy. It's almost like Hamas doesn't want peace. Of course they don't. They, they thrive in war. And uh, Thomas, by the way, I, I, I read Thomas Massey's reason for voting nay on the resolution. I totally disagree with it, honestly. I, this idea that you see a lot in the Libertarian Party is that, you know, if we just treat those bad guys nicer, they'll be nice to us. That's complete horse hockey. That's just, it's just nonsense. That's some idealistic view where people like Thomas Massey thinks that Hamas terrorists are peaceful like he is. Yeah, Palestine is not the victim just because they're losing a war that they started. Right. That's right. And that's got to be kept in perspective. I, to- I totally agree. So I'm disappointed in Representative Massey uh, for not signing on. I-, I-, I read all that garbage, and it's 
that's just him, like Trump says, trying to get attention. Trump said he was grandstanding when he wouldn't vote for the CARES Act. That's what he said. And there's a lot of truth to that. He's just looking for attention. Now, earlier I said that the way to, I think, was going to share with you some thoughts I have about how to address this problem with our our financial situation, where we've got 70% of our spending wrapped up in mandatory, statutory outlays that are on autopilot, don't get appropriated. So all this discussion you hear from the Speaker of the House, newly minted Mike Johnson and all those in Congress, yeah, we got to pass these bills, and we just had Congressman Getz, and he's well aware of this, by the way. I've talked to him about it. He knows. Is that they're only talking about this sliver of spending, this 30%. And in that, there's no desire on the part of the Republicans who were in control of the House to cut defense spending. So that you're down to 14%. Okay, so how do we get serious about addressing the problems with the other portion, which is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, about 20 or so federal assistance programs? And then, of course, you got debt interest, which is driven by the increase in the debt. It's almost as if we need, I know a lot of people say, well, that sounds like term limits, what I'm about to say. It's almost like you need political mercenaries, and here's what I mean by that. The reason they won't talk about it is because they know it's politically toxic, and it almost assures that you've got no chance of getting elected, either the first time or re-elected to office, House or Senate. So they stay away from it. Even Donald Trump said, don't talk about it, Republicans, because you won't get elected if you do. So it's like you need political mercenaries. And what I mean by that is someone who says, I'm willing to go up there, make the very difficult, unpopular decisions, knowing that I will be removed from office in the next cycle and accept that fate. I'm going to go in, do a job, not popular, probably, honestly, if you think about it, Rhino, draw death threats, sadly. And a life of hell afterwards. But that's the only way. Um, Are there any out there that are willing to do that? I don't know. Hadn't seen anybody. Let's talk about old Thomas Massey, Mr. Fiscal restrain himself. I've not seen any bills that he's offered to rein in Social Security, Medicare, to do something. The Democrats have. They want to raise taxes. Unfortunately, they only want to raise taxes on those who make more than $400,000 a year, but then they want to cut them out of the program. And that won't fix it, by the way. Now, you could raise Social Security and Medicare taxes. Analysts that uh, and actuaries that have researched that in great detail say we need to double. Think about that. Double. It ain't fun now paying that on your paycheck. I think it's 7.65%, if I'm not mistaken, the combined Social Security and Medicare. Double. So that means, that means over 13%, 13.3% of your check, rather than 7.65%, going to Social Security and Medicare. That would fix it. Think about that, though. How it's a real, real hard sell for a couple generations like mine and the ones behind us that are convinced it won't even be there when we get there. Exactly right. 
They, 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 so they're looking at it saying, well, what, what am I getting for this? I, I get it. Also, yesterday, Ben from Madison asked me a question about PERS because PERS has been meeting to discuss its financial challenges, and uh, I'll hit on that when we come back in the final segment in the Element Wealth Studio. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. A man walks down the street. He says, Why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle now? My life is so hard. I need a photo opportunity. I want a shot of redemption. Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon. We're back in the Element Well studio. Thank you for joining us. So, uh, Ben asked me a question yesterday. I hope he's listening. And it was a good question. It is true that uh, the PERS folks, uh, the board, uh, the executive director, Mr. Higgins, they, they've been meeting and discussing. The, uh, the purse financial issues, stuff we've been talking about on the air quite a bit. They know. The legislature knows. Um, and so what they want to do is is what I've, I felt like was, was coming. Not, not that there was any, any great mental feat to see this would be the route. It's create a new, a new tier, the board. And that simply means that all those who enter the system as an active member as of a certain date would fall under whatever the, the, the rules are, the guidelines uh, for co- contributions, for retirement, service benefit, cost of living benefit, vesting, calculation of the benefits. Yeah, I saw uh, somewhere options. where they lowered vesting to like four years yeah, instead, for the new fifth tier. Yeah, instead of um, the present number of eight. And... I think that I haven't looked at all the details, but I think that's like a positive aspect of it in exchange for perhaps I haven't seen all the details again, higher contributions maybe or um, or some something else in the way of adjusting the benefits. Right, so you may. I mean, you, just looking at vesting, if you cut the vesting time from eight to four, you cut it in half. Yeah. That provides a little more flexibility in your career. Agree. Where if you're, say, a teacher, and you you don't want to necessarily teach in the same place four years, or you want to take a couple of years off, raise a family, that that gives you that flexibility to to be able to be vested quicker, so that life can go on. Yeah, and I and I think that's kind of a, a positive aspect of the new tier in exchange for maybe some concessions relative to the other tiers. So we already have four in place, and each one of those, again, uh, has a different structure associated with it. All right, so that's one thing. And then the um, the other is that they've asked the legislature for just a one-time infusion of $350 million. Uh, something else. To keep in mind is that we uh, we know that 
We have a five percentage point increase scheduled to go into effect July 1st, 2024. By the way, that's still subject to approval by the legislature, but the board has already passed that. And and actually, what they what they did is rather than just a flat five percent as originally passed, they amended it to say we're going to phase it in and we're going to continue to increase it at the rate of two percent per year. Talking about the employer contribution rate until uh, we achieve actuarial soundness at a rate that is recommended by the actuaries. And that is going to, therefore, at this point today, based on calculations, mean an increase of 10 percentage points from the present 17.4 to 27.4 over a five to six year period of time being phased in. So that will cost, since that's, that cost is borne by the taxpayers, it's, it's employee burden is what it's called. It's no different than paying employee salaries to public sector workers, work for state agencies, municipalities, counties, school districts, etc. You, you're looking at an increase of 10% of their wages additionally going into PERS. That cost taxpayers... Each 5% increment costs taxpayers $345 million annually. So you're looking at an additional $700 million annual cost to shore up PERS from an employer contribution perspective. And that probably won't be sufficient indefinitely, permanently meaning there will have to be some other action taken. So that's what's on the boards right now. The employer contribution rate increase, the one-time request. Of course, the legislature has to sign off on that, $350 million, and then creation, establishment of a new retirement tier. That's where we are on that. Wow. I would gladly contribute more to my PERS. Here's the issue with that. State statute says in order to increase employee contributions, benefits have to be commensurately enhanced, meaning you don't really get anything for it in terms of of, uh, improving financial stability and solvency. Now, can the legislature change that? I think so. There's still some debate about that because it's based on an AG opinion. Right, so yeah, it's just a co- it's a complicated thing. I'm still writing an article. I'm pretty close. I've got 1,700 words so far. It's kind of wordy, but it's a complicated matter. Folks, we're out of here today. We thank you for joining us. We're going to be in Oxford tomorrow for the Ole Miss Banking uh, Symposium. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.